Welcome to Talks at GS, where leading thinkers share insights and ideas shaping the world. This session of Talks at GS was recorded before a live audience. It is my pleasure and honor to invite Emily Weiss to join us here. She is the founder and CEO of Glossier. So let's let's kind of get into this. It's very interesting. Um, we love having entrepreneurs here. Um, you, from what we know, uh, started at a very young age being interested in brands and the consumer. And we are told that you actually wrote a letter to Vogue when you were in middle school. Tell us about that. Sure. Um, yeah, I mean, I've always been, I think, really fascinated by storytelling, um, and especially really fascinated by the power of personal narrative, and uh, through which you know platforms or conduits could people tell their story, and using which tools, whether that's you know fashion um, apparel or accessories or beauty um, products. Really been uh, always intrigued by. Um, people being able to form identities and kind of communicate those identities and share those identities. And so um, I used to read a lot of fashion magazines, you know, pre-Instagram uh, growing up and, um, and uh, yeah, wrote, wrote a letter once and they, they published it and I, I, about, I don't know, skirts and how they made mini skirts look cool and, and chic. But, um, you know, I would have never guessed that I would have worked there, you know, one day as a, as a, lowly assistant, but I, I, did, I did end up doing that about, uh, I don't know, 10 years later. What was it? You said you liked the narrative. You liked to tell a story. Is that, was that part of what led you to, um, into the beauty realm? Yeah, a little bit. Um, it's funny. I was just having a, a, a lunch and learn at, at Glossier with one of our new hires in our data team. <clears throat> she asked me the same question literally two hours ago. She said, well, you know, I've heard all your podcasts and I, you know, I know the, how I built this, but what actually interested you about beauty? Uh, way back when, um, and I said, you know, I love beauty so much because it's an incredible conduit for connection. It's an amazing icebreaker. She said, what do you mean? I said, well, you know, I was the person in high school, I would do all my friends' makeup before dances just because I wanted an excuse to hang out with my friends, you know, and, and get all up in their face and be talking to them and, and, and connected. It wasn't that I was the best makeup artist or that I'm the most passionate or knowledgeable for that matter on, you know, makeup or, or skincare, but I love that it can really create uh, like it's a catalyst for having a conversation with someone, and in many cases, someone you've never met before. Um, so yeah. So you took that desire to have the conversation into creating Into the Gloss. So this was in 2010. So actually, Into the Gloss uh, launched about two months, I think, before Instagram launched. Just to like couch, you know, where we were. Um, and of course, it took several years from, for even Instagram to, to sort of be, you know, start to become not just a hobbyist kind of photography uh, medium. And the idea for creating Into the Gloss, it was really like our MVP to what we do today and what we continue to build today. Um, it was about really democratizing beauty and about saying that every single person on an individual level is an expert. You who woke up this morning and chose your deodorant to put on again are an expert on that deodorant. You know it works, you, you like the way it smells, you've bought it a couple times, you are in fact an expert at 
your preference for deodorant. And I think that's a really interesting and uh, total 360, or sorry, 180 from uh, the, this huge industry that has been built on the backs of uh, telling you that you don't have a clue and that actually you need to listen to you know, brands or brand media or brand appointed spokespeople or celebrities to tell you, you know, that what to do right because you're clearly doing everything wrong. Um, and this is a massive industry. I mean, I don't, I don't need to tell you guys. It's a $450 billion global market. It's going to be $750 billion in six years. So this is growing incredibly fast. Um, and, uh, and I thought, you know, given where technology's at today, and even though it's 2010, YouTube is just, you know, sort of getting started with beauty influencers and all of these things, um, it seems like we're really going to go the way of peer-to-peer. And in fact, if you fast forward to where we are today, it's something like 89% um, of millennials today say that they make their purchasing decisions on Instagram. They choose where to, what to get when you're actually scrolling through social media. Think of how many of us all do this, right? You're seeing your friends wearing a certain shoe, or seeing your friends wear, you know, eating out somewhere, or seeing some, some cool lamp in their house. And then you, you, know, tat, you see if it's tagged, you try to track it down. Maybe it's on Amazon, maybe it's on Glossier, maybe it's somewhere else. So it's really interesting um, how much technology is, is shifting uh, where the consumer um, is making those decisions. And so Into the Gloss was all about interviewing women about their beauty routines. Famous women, not famous women, girls with pink hair who worked at coffee shops, Kim Kardashian, Ariana Huffington, I mean, so many different kinds of people to say, what do you like? You're an expert about you. You, you wake up with you every day. What are you, what are you into? Um, and that really took off uh, very quickly, just in a few months, and, and, um, uh, and that, that is the story of Into the Gloss. So you created this real digital community on the blog, um, and you started to get some feedback and information, and that eventually led to the actual launch of Glossier. Mm -hmm. And how much of the feedback you get from your community is embedded in your product? Can you talk a little bit about that whole cycle and how that works. Sure. Um, so, you know, originally it was very kind of analog, right? We post a couple times a week on Into the Gloss for two years, and what that resulted in was this amazing set of market research, essentially. You know, 200 interviews, uh, just more comments than any major media platform that was a beauty, a fashion platform like a Vogue.com or an L.com or something like that on this little blog. Um, talking about beauty products. And um, it was pretty much just, you know, reading it and, and listening to what people were saying about this disconnection from uh, the brands that they were purchasing the products from. So it wasn't just about innovation in products. Certainly, we all know there are thousands of beauty products. There is so much, there's almost an overwhelming amount, right? Um, and you need two things to kind of cut through the noise. One, you need people to help you cut through the noise. And you know, in a recent survey today, something like 58% of people ignore the salesperson when they go into a, a store, whether it's Sephora or somewhere else, and they find their own person on text or somewhere, hey, I'm standing in Sephora, what mascara should I get, right? They're not talking to the salesperson. So you need a change in regime of how do you connect with a human being to help influence what you get. But you also need brands that listen to you. So because of this you know, kind of archaic business model of, you know, brand selling to basically being in cahoots with retailer who then sells to customer, the customer and the brand relationship is totally fragmented. 
These big companies do not know who their customers are. They don't have the data. They can't serve them. They can't ask them how it went. They can't say, is there something else you want? Um, and they're really hamstrung by these relationships with the retailer because uh, they drive all their business. So it's going to be really hard for them to pivot to you know, become e-commerce experts right? And, and take all that business online from, from Macy's or, or wherever it may be. But fundamentally, what we think about is that broken you know, customer relationship and how they're missing out on such a huge opportunity to better serve uh, customers. So um, the way that we do that is anywhere from you know, asking our customers, uh, you know, we want to make a face wash. What's your dream face wash? And having thousands of comments and uh, you know, learning about what ingredients they want, what they don't want, um, who would play it in a movie. People actually answered that question. They said, Eddie Redmayne would play my dream face wash. Uh, Julianne Moore would play it, Emma Stone. I'm like, well, thank you, first of all, for answering the question. But secondly, they're all redheads. What does this mean, right? So um, we made a very sort of like creamy, sensitive, sort of sensitive skin uh, face wash that's now our you know, third best-selling product. Um, uh, and so there's, there's countless ways. There's not you know, some machine learning algorithmic exact science way. You know, we're, not, we're not sort of one for one crowdsourcing, um, but through a variety of channels and, and factors and our ability to understand you know, so much about um, uh, the repeat purchasing behavior from our customers, the lifetime value, uh, whether she's a skincare customer, whether she's a makeup customer, how to you know, create or serve her better skincare items or better, versus better makeup items. Um, it's really a whole new era for you know, what you can build when you, when you have that relationship with the customer. Another thing that seems to be shifting rather rapidly in beauty is it takes the big companies six months to launch a new product when now potential customers will see, will use her just because you had mentioned her before, Kim Kardashian comes out in neon lipstick and neon earrings and people want that now, yep. how do you respond to those trends or do you not? Do you say that's not our business? It's a great question. You know, we've always thought about a few things that are kind of historic and that always sounds silly because we're a four and a half year old company. <laughs> but, you know, um, I would say really systemic kind of principles that we have at, at, at Glossier Inc. One is to grow incredibly intentionally. So, you know, there's a very good chance we could 5x revenue if we kind of, you know, started distributing in multi-brand stores all around the world tomorrow. We've chosen not to do that because we believe in the kind of the second big principle, which is longevity. It's incredibly hard to build a consumer brand or really any product or any company or brand today, harder than ever, I would argue, because of how fast the flywheel goes and how fast technology changes, the flywheel of interest, right, of people's interest, of content, just the massive amount of content we're creating and consuming on a daily basis, an annual basis. So to think about how companies like Nike Right? Or companies like Apple continue to uh, create iconic products that, like the Air Jordan, that last and continue to be able to you know, uh, uh, be relevant and continue to be this tool for um, kind of connection, whether it's a person in you know, the Middle East who's wearing an Air Jordan, a 15-year-old or a you know, billionaire in Silicon Valley who's wearing one. You're both you know, cross-generationally, cross-socioeconomically. Um, uh, wearing and connected by the same thing. So something we think a lot about is um, 
Something we don't think a lot about is trend. Uh, we are pretty much the opposite of fast fashion. Uh, we have a meticulous approach to quality and meticulous approach to innovation and to longevity, um, in particular when it comes to the quality of these products. Um, a huge driver of our growth has been owned, earned, organic, and peer-to-peer. -peer. I mean, over 70% of our growth to date has been through uh, people saying, I love Glossier. I love this lip balm. I love this face wash. It is great. The experience of getting it was great. Um, the company uh, customer service was great. And the product itself fundamentally is amazing. And as we continue to go towards this world of review being king, the review being king, the individual opinion being you know, absolutely king, uh, your product has to be incredible. If you want to stick around, if you want to be a company that's going to, to stand the test of time. Talk about that. As good as you guys are, yeah. and you're better than any, you must get complaints about things. How do you address that, given that you've created this very intimate relationship with your customers? Is there mm -hmm. outreach? Do you have people reaching mm -hmm. out to these people? Do you? For sure. So our customers, so first of all, uh, like uh, organizationally, our customer support team is in our marketing team. So it is, it is in, you know, it is not sort of in a dark corner, kind of in a different office. They are one of the strongest, most uh, just incredible teams in our company. Um, our return rate is less than 1.5%. Uh, one of the reasons, and, and we're incredibly proud of that, our NPS, our net promoter score, is actually increasing even as our net increases. So even as we put on a million new customers in 2018, our NPS is going up. And there's not kind of a one bullet, one sort of trick that leads to that. One is definitely the quality of the product. Two is how do you fundamentally uh, build every, make every decision with digital in mind? Again, this is a big difference between you know, these incumbent uh, companies where uh, the channel is not you know, baked into every decision. So for us, everything from what products do we make and are we, is this going to work as a product that sells online? Like are customers going, are we gonna be able to communicate effectively through words, through pictures, through um, you know, digital tools and digital products, what it is that you're getting, what it is that you're signing up for in such a way that you're not gonna be disappointed. Uh, we would rather not have the sale than, you know, have someone get something and say, oh, I didn't know, you know, I didn't want this. And of course, when, when they do respond to us and they do say, hey, it's the wrong shade for me, despite our best efforts to make sure that, you know, the shades are adaptable in the first place and we have a, you know, shade finder selection tool and, you know, all these things, um, that we uh, really make it right for them. And, um, and that leads to that, you know, that recommendation kind of flywheel. And so you and I have talked about the fact that you consider yourself, rightfully so, both a tech company, because you are clearly tech-enabled, both informationally and other ways, but you're also a consumer products company, a beauty company. Mm -hmm. How do you think about those two things? Are they completely entwined, and is there any, do you think that the tech is more, like, do you lean one way or another? Mm -hmm. um, we're really a combination of hardware and software. So, you know, our hardware products are physical products, and that is um, really where our revenue comes from. So we make, you know, we make beauty products, they're proprietary products, um, and we're building software. So we have software that we're working on uh, that's going to really evangelize that review. And um, I don't wanna say too much, but you'll start to see it come out this year. Um, software that really solves uh, having this beauty conversation in a more fluid way um, and helps us as a company listen at scale. 
So Into the Gloss worked really well when, you know, as a, again, sort of um, analog kind of manual, you know, posting twice a week example. But today, how do you build tools um, for everyone to share that story, for every you know, person to be able to say, here's what I've learned about products, and for every person to be able to say, man, I really need to know what's the mascara I need to wear for my wedding, uh, where do I go? And in, you know, increasingly, people are going peer-to-peer -peer, um, through text message. The second best choice is Google search. But as we all know, with Google search, you have to get through page like seven before you actually see a non-SEO'd, non-paid-for, non-brand-sponsored, non-media-manipulated you know, post that's like, here's the mascara I like, and it's not sponsored. Um, so that's what we're working on, and I would say underpinning all of this is this just incredible data layer, um, again, of information about our customers uh, that helps us you know, build better, better experiences for her. So let's switch gears a little bit. You have obviously had a very successful ability to raise money for the company, and you've got a great relationship with all of your investors. But in the very beginning, for many women-owned companies, there's a question mark on the investing side and how much money is actually flowing from the VCs into women-owned businesses. Mm -hmm. And you faced some of the skepticism early on. Talk mm -hmm. a little bit about the no's when it came to investing like mm -hmm. what your perspective is on that and, and how you're changing that face for the VCs about what a successful company, especially a woman-led company, looks like. Yeah, so I mean, if you kind of zoom out and think about the macro environment of, of venture capital and, and kind of the way, why the way things are the way things are, um, there's an incredible amount of pattern matching that happens, right? So many of the VCs are former operators. Many of the VCs are former uh, sort of people who have built PayPal or built you know, tech companies in the Valley and the earlier stage companies, most of those people are men. So they're the, they're the new crop of VCs. 6% um, of venture capitalists are women uh, last year. Last year, 4% of VC deals went to female-led uh, businesses. 2% of VC dollars went to uh, female-led businesses. And the you know, percentages for women of color are you know, way worse. So. Um, we have a long way to go. We have a long way to go. Um, so I, I first raised the first round four years ago. Uh, I guess it would be about five years ago now. Um, and if you go back to kind of pattern matching, you know, these are companies that are looking for companies like the ones that have exited, uh, like the you know PayPal's and the Facebooks, and um, and so when you have a women's interest beauty company come around. Uh, there's not a lot of you know examples there for for them to say oh this can be a uh, like the things we've seen before, and um, I'm fortunate that I, that I was able to meet some some really uh, some really smart people and um, we have an amazing board now. Our first uh, investor is Kirsten Green from Forerunner, who's behind a lot of direct to consumer companies like uh, Warby Parker and Away. But yeah, that, I mean that was tough. That was that was tough. But you know what? It's tough for everybody. It's tough. If you're an entrepreneur and you're out like trying to raise two million dollars, it should be hard. I mean, I feel like, you know, it should be hard. And I, I mean, it's it's good to know. I actually just found out um, right before I came up here that in 2018, uh, 780 million dollars of venture capital, which is roughly one percent of total capital deployed last year, went to beauty startups. Um, I don't know how many of those were female founded, but I bet a lot. 
And so I think that speaks to the power of uh, women's categories, women's interest, women's spending power, um, and also to uh, kind of the changing tides of, of venture capital and what kinds of categories they're interested in, um, and having, you know, seeing that they're really waking up to beauty. You're obviously a very driven and passionate person. You've talked about the number of females on your executive team and your engineering staff. On your board now, you've added Katrina Lake. You've forged a relationship with the folks at um, your VCs. Do you feel, as a woman, successful woman entrepreneur, some measure of responsibility around your platform? For sure, for sure. I mean, one of the biggest things that I say is like, we have to win. It's not enough just to, you know, have gotten where we've gotten to. Uh, you know, I know I have friends whose companies, you know, went belly up, like much more revenue than we are. So I, I think, you know, you really have to be, you have to win. You have to win really big. You have to be a a, a very big company and and have have a lot of success. And so I think I think there is responsibility there, and you have to make the right decisions doing that because it's not worth anything unless you've been you know honest and high integrity and uh, treated people right along the way. On that note, now you can see why I was so excited to have you guys here from Emily. She is absolutely incredible in all walks of life. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. This podcast was recorded on January 14th, 2019. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part or disclosed by any recipient to any other person. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute a recommendation from any Goldman Sachs entity to the recipient. Neither Goldman Sachs nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty, express or implied, as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast and any liability, therefore, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage, is expressly disclaimed. The views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of Goldman Sachs, and Goldman Sachs is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice or recommendations in this podcast. In addition, the receipt of this podcast by any recipient is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by Goldman Sachs to that recipient, nor to constitute such person a client of any Goldman Sachs entity.